Hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we talk about the science behind your favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma and this week we're calling the episode Kiln-Fired Science <laughs> because we're slipping into the science behind oh. the great pottery throwdown. <laughs> Karen, Kiln, you believe that this is the last episode of the series? <laughs> uh, t- but don't worry everyone, we'll be back next, <laughs> <laughs> next year. <laughs> We've outdone ourselves this time. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was good. Yeah. <laughs> so many pottery puns. <laughs> Absolutely. And you may have you may have swapped, uh, spotted them. Although wheel does work better uh, written down than it does actually being said. It does. It, turns out. I think it does a little bit. It does a little bit. So uh, look out for those uh, later on in the show because we'll be fettling them through the episode. I'm going to have to ask you what that one is, though. I don't get that one. What's fettling? Um, so that's where you, if you cast um, pottery, uh, sometimes you end up with seams um, where the castings happen. So this is about scraping oh. those seams off to make it smooth. Oh, I've seen them. I've seen them doing that on the, mm. on the show. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. Right. Talking about things we've seen on the show. Mm. Can we start with one of my all-time favourite clips? Go Have you it. seen Johnny Vegas <laughs> when he makes a teapot in like under oh, a minute? Yes. <laughs> it's amazing. He, yeah. he just like turns up, and you're thinking, "What is Johnny Vegas doing <laughs> on Great Pottery Throwdown?" This is in 2017 or something. Yeah. And um, he just sits down at the potter's wheel, and yeah. they count him down, and he's got a minute, and he throws a teapot. Yeah, it was lid, amazing. Lid, spout, handle the works. <laughs> yeah, and even even tests it by pouring water out of it. it was, yeah, very impressive stuff. Yeah. Very impressive. It's, stuff. it's obviously a bit of a mess because you know what can you produce in a minute? But it's a functioning teapot. It's amazing. It does technically work. Yeah. yeah. Um, he used to do it as part of his um, stage show, actually. And ah. uh, back in 1999, uh, there was like a Millennium Pottery Festival kind of thing that he was at. And he challenged a couple of potters to do it on stage. And oh, that really? pot that he produced uh, is in the Victoria and Albert Museum. <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> That's just brilliant. I love yeah. that. Love yeah. that a lot. But it's, it's definitely amazing. worth a watch, guys, if you haven't seen it. There's lots mm. of it on YouTube. I'm very impressed. Yeah. <laughs> so if you... I mean, I obviously know that for this episode, spoiler alert, listeners, we went and did some pottery. <laughs> yes. Because any excuse for a field trip... Any excuses mm-hmm. of crafting. But before that, had you ever thrown a pot before or done anything like that? Well, I was quite lucky because um, at school we did 3D art as well as 2D art. Now, I didn't go on to do 3D art um, for, for GCSE because it turns out I'm not the world's greatest um, at potting. <laughs> <laughs> because... I know you very well. And I, I honestly <laughs> wish that you had because I would love to see what you'd made. <laughs> uh, because um, the... Um, what with the kind of potting that we used to do was you had to roll out like a snake of of clay mm-hmm. and then wrap it round in a big circle to create a pot and then squeeze it so it was all looking beautiful so you can imagine oh. that that kind of potting not not great for me that's no. not as inspiring as if you're on a wheel is it actually no 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 so. patrick swayze there while you're making a clay snake <laughs> slightly no. different experience um, and we are experts in ghosts now aren't we after our most haunted episode we know how to <laughs> yeah, that's true that's true that's so we know if he was there or not and he definitely wasn't, unfortunately. <laughs> he was not. He did not make an appearance in our studio. So, so listeners, no. we're going to transport you now. You can come on our craft field trip with us. Mm. This is one of the few times we managed to actually see each other in person this year yeah. and do something fun for the podcast. Um, so we're going to transport you now to a warm studio on the outskirts of Bath where we spent a really, really lovely afternoon trying to socially distance <laughs> in, a, in a studio um, with the really wonderful Kim Donaldson, who is an artist and owner of Blue Leaf Ceramics. 
Yeah, and she starts us off by uh, introducing us to the clay and giving it a good old thump. <laughs> she does. She does. She's uh, definitely punching that clay. You can you can hear it in the clip. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a quick demo. Um, basically, this is redder than my clay from Stoke-on-Trent. The same clay that's used to make the flower pots. So I've cut off a piece. I've put it on this rolling cloth so it doesn't stick to the table. I press it down a bit with my hands and when you're rolling it out, you do, it sticks almost immediately to the cloth. So I keep lifting it up, turning it round, roll that way. And that literally is all you need to do. Keep an eye on the thickness. You don't want it because you're making too long. Okay, so listeners, imagine we're both in aprons now. We've got bowls in front of us that we're about to press our kind of rolled out clay into so that it dries in the same shape as, as the bowl that we want. Um, and then we're going to try our best to decorate them. Yeah. And and you went for um, a fruit bowl and I've gone for kind of like a large serving platter. And Kim mm. sees me spotting a piece of lace nearby and shows us how to make some amazing textures in the clay. The moulds that you've chosen. And then we have a beautiful texture. Right. So you saw this caught your eye. So let's just show you what it's like when you actually roll it into clay. So don't be timid. There's nothing worse than a half-hearted roll-in. So be quite firm with it until you see the clay popping through. And then you whip it off and you've got that. Oh, wow. It's immediate, it's like an etching. Yeah. Then after this, what I've got is, here we go, we can go all leafy. So you can go organic. So I've got some fresh leaves here and you just roll it in be firm but don't bury it there you go when you see it sort of even with the surface whip it off and then you've got okay now that's the choice that i made show me some leaves show me some clay and i am in literally any excuse to involve nature or the environment in crafting so i went on a little explore outside the studio picked some fresh leaves and <laughs> used a variety of different things to create some really cool imprints in the clay um i'll put a i'll put a time lapse on our instagram and now we have what i call stamps and rollers and they're fun so she brought out this tub of amazing stamps that she used to create various patterns in the mm. clay. And, and these were made of, um, made of clay as well, weren't they? Which was really, really important, actually, it turns out. There's a really clear scientific reason as to why these stamps were actually made of clay. Mm. So sometimes they can be made of things like plaster of Paris mm. um, because it is harder to create them out of clay. But she doesn't like making them out of plaster of Paris because sometimes the plaster of Paris can chip when you're mm. using it to imprint. And if any of those tiny pieces of plaster of Paris get stuck in the clay, that can cause huge problems. So basically, it will embed itself in the clay. And when you've fired it and you've glazed it, it'll all work properly. But in a week's time, that, that little chip of plaster of Paris will have absorbed all of the moisture from the atmosphere around it. And um, it will actually explode and it will blow up your pot. So it's like mm. a, <laughs> a, a time bomb <laughs> later. You've created something beautiful, <laughs> but this tiny little chip will ruin whatever it is that you've made. So. No plaster of Paris. We're all about the clay stamps. Um, and once we've done and we've we've created all these stamps in our uh, clay, we're ready to dry and fire them. So how long does it take to dry before you pop it in the kiln um, for the first time? 
it takes about a week. If your piece is quite big, it'll take a week. If the weather's really hot and it's thin, it could take two days. Mm. So I give it a week just about to dry out and then it goes in for its first firing, which is a biscuit, we call it a biscuit firing. And that goes to 1000 degrees centigrade. Um, this dark brown clay comes out that red terracotta, terracotta colour. Okay, and it's quite soft. Then, when it's done that, I pick the pot up. And if you've painted your coloured slips on this, which is coloured liquid clays, and I will dip your pot into a clear glaze. And then it's put into another firing to a temperature of 1080 degrees and come out shiny. Fantastic. Why is it so important to get or to really dry it out before it goes in the kiln? Because um, you might have pockets of moisture and if they evaporate too quickly, uh, the pot can explode because it starts boiling and expanding and not really what you the want. same if you have an air if you have an air bubble. Okay, so a couple of weeks later, we uh, we went back to the studio to go and pick up our, our finished pieces. So she fired and glazed them for us. Um, mm. We'd painted on, we'd used slip, hadn't we? We'd painted on some yeah, coloured right, clay yeah. to kind of create some atmosphere and some colour in our pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what did what did you reckon? Are you pleased with yours? I actually quite liked it. It's the best piece of pottery I've ever produced. It's miles better than anything <laughs> I produced at school. That's, that's <laughs> an interesting caveat though, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's the best thing I've ever produced. I've never done pottery before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. They were, they were, I was really impressed, actually. Yeah. We um, so I, mine ended up being quite an autumnal fruit bowl. I went a bit too um, I wasn't liberal enough with my my clay slip. I mm. thought that it would come out much more coloured. So you have to use a lot more yeah. of it than I expected, basically. So mine's yeah. still really yeah. like earthy, and it's got the the kind of the the reds and the browns of the clay are still really present in it, which is not what I intended, but actually I really like. So now it's kind of a yeah, very autumnal, especially with all the leaves. Yes, it works really, really well with the leaves, actually. And I quite like mine. It's mostly mostly white glazed, and um, but with little splashes of colour on it. But it's, mine's all about the pattern that's created mm. on the plate, actually. And yeah, I'm quite pleased you with it. With your, your yeah. lace rolling. It's really cool. That's right. Really yeah. cool. Really yeah. interesting. Um, so you can pop on over to our website or to our Instagram or Twitter, and um, we'll put up some pictures of our, our final pieces. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's time we talked a little bit about the science behind uh, pottery itself, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we've been so, on our field um, trip. Let's bring it back to the science. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so clay itself, when it's pottery clay, you get um, these little particles of clay present and then you get water in between those particles because clay has to be moist mm. for you to be able to use it. Um, and it's also got to have this uh, plasticity to it. Now, if something's elastic, when you kind of stretch it out, it will return back to its original shape. And you don't want clay to do that. No. What you want is the the plasticity so that you can um, stretch it out into a particular shape and then it stays in that shape. So so that's the the two key indicators of, of clay, really, that you need for mm. potting. And I mean, there are lots of different types of clay that mm. you can use for pottery. So earthenware is um, the kind of one that everyone sort of recognises. This is what our ancestors used. It's very porous. Um, so it does need to be sealed with a glaze so that it actually is watertight once you fired it. Um, and of all of the the types of clay, this is the one that needs the lowest um, temperature for firing. So you'd recognise it in things like terracotta plant pots. Yeah, yeah. So, and then you've got stoneware, and this is what you kind of use for your um, your mugs and your plates and things. And this needs much higher firing temperatures um, because the clay will actually vitrify. So this is where it kind of turns into almost like a glass-like substance, mm. which is what makes it waterproof and, you know, perfect for things like 
your kitchen wares. Yeah. So because of this, it doesn't actually need a separate glaze. So that's pretty mm. cool. And then you've got kaolin, uh, which mm. is used to make porcelain. So this is this has got lower plasticity. So what you were just talking about, it's actually much trickier to work with, um, which makes it quite expensive. Yeah. Um, but this is the clay that you use in things like also th- like soaps and scrubs and, and face masks. Yeah, because it's got such a fine grain to it. Um, so so the whole process of making making a pot's got several different stages. So once you've initially molded your pot out of the clay, the first step is to let it dry out. And once mm. it's dried out, this is this is when it's called greenware. And mm. in theory, you could add water back to that clay again and remold it and repurpose it in theory. Um, but that um that greenware, once it's dried out, um, you can actually scrape additional bits of it. So on the on the show, Pottery Throwdown, you'll see them taking those uh, pots out of the drying room and then kind of tidying them up before they go in for a final firing. Mm. Um, and then this first firing is called bisque firing. Um, and uh, this is this is actually measured in a really weird unit. And this mm. unit is called the cone, which mm. is a very, very odd unit. But the unit takes into account the time it's in the kiln and the temperature that is there as well. Um, because obviously different... Um, you need the, the temperature to increase very, very slowly over time and different temperatures have different effects on the clay. Um, and the temperature rise needs to go to about kind of 926 to 1,038, which Gosh. is equivalent to four to five cones. Yeah, I mean, and as Kim mentioned uh, to us when we were there, if the pots aren't completely dry before they actually go into the firing, then all of this escaping steam uh, from the water that's left in the clay mm. can cause it to explode. Yeah, so you do is- want to make sure that you've left it for an appropriate amount of time before putting it in the firing. So this actually happens because all of the water that's actually combined in the clay is driven off at around, you know, 550 degrees. Um, mm-hmm. And this process is called dehydroxylation. Nice word. I like that Lovely one. word. De- yeah. Dehydroxylation. And it's interesting when you're looking at the kiln, mm-hmm. you can use the color of the flame and the, the inside to kind of guesstimate or make an approximation of the temperature inside the kiln because mm. you, you want to make sure you're getting the right temperature. Yeah. Um, but it's funny, if you are looking at it it's throwing off a kind of a red heat, it could be around 700 to 900 degrees. Mm-hmm. An orange heat is more like 1,100. When it's yellow, it's around 1,200. But if it's a really white hot flame, then it's more like 1,300 degrees, which is yeah. pretty scorching. Pretty yeah, that, scorching. that is that is hot. But it turns out not hot enough um, for for a basic glaze, which which is quite oh, yeah. interesting. So so once you've fired it and you've done this bisque firing, the next stage is to add the glaze to the to the pottery. Um, and glaze contains several different elements. So the first part is the is what's called the glass former. So this gives it its glossy, shiny finish on the surface. Mm. And this is normally silica that's added. Now, silica, the problem with silica is it needs really, really high temperatures for this process to actually occur. So we're talking about 1,710 degrees Celsius. So you can immediately see that's hotter than white hot. So that's, mm. you know, that is a problem in itself, isn't it? Um, so what glazes have in them is something called flux. And what flux does is it it's kind of prevents oxidation and it lowers the melting point of silica. So that means, um, therefore, it does melt within the kiln. Uh-huh. But when you've got silica and flux together, the big problem with that is it's too runny. So it would just basically run off your pot. So that's no good either. Not so what they want. then do is they add a stabilizer or a stiffening agent. And this is normally uh, aluminium oxide. And what that does is it stops it running off your pot. So so there's all these. So glaze is actually really quite complicated. Really complicated. Yeah. There's a lot of steps going into that. 
Yeah. Um, so another thing when it comes to your pottery is the decoration. Yes. And often you'll see pots and things elegantly painted with lots of amazing colors. Mm. And and what it's the way they do this is they use colored oxides, which are used yeah. to give the actual the glazes themselves a color. So for example, some of the most common um, colorings are from oxides of iron or copper or cobalt. Mm-hmm. And iron seems to be one of the most versatile and can give you sort of yellows, browns, blues, greens, lots of different shades. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a very popular one to be using. And Kim actually used a tin oxide quite often, didn't she, in her yeah. particular style? So that was really cool to see. Um, and then the way this kind of we're going to get into some real basic color science here. So yeah. <laughs> an object will have a color because of its ability to absorb a certain like, wavelength of colored light. Yeah. So white light contains all of the colors of the spectrum. Roy G. Biv, or yes. what was your acronym <laughs> for it? Um, uh, it was um, Richard of York gave battle in vain. That was it. Mm. Um, so for example, you know, leaves are green. We see them as green because mm. actually the chlorophyll in the leaves does not absorb green light and it's the only one that's kind of reflected back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is where, um, you know, this colouring of the glazes is where uh, we go back to oxidation and reduction. Now in Breaking Bad, we talked about oil rig. So mm. oxidation is the loss of electrons and reduction is the gain of electrons. And oxidation and reduction is really important in the colour of glazes. So um, if you take iron, for example, um, it's uh, a transition metal. All of those metals you mentioned before that are used in glazes are transition metals. And the special thing about transition metals is they've got different oxidation numbers. Mm. Um, and, and what this means, if you take iron, for example, you can have Fe2+, plus or Fe3+. Plus. So that's two different, um, two different ions. Now, an Fe2+, plus has lost two electrons, and an Fe3 plus has lost three electrons. And um, compounds of those um, two, so oxides of those two, will end up producing different color glazes. And what's really important is that this oxidation and reduction process will change the oxidation number of all these different transition metals, and that changes the color. And that's what's key. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, different types of kiln will produce different conditions. So it will actually force it to oxidize or to reduce. So that's That's another way of controlling the color you're going to get. So interestingly, one of the most common ones to use is, is for example, if you're using an electric kiln, um, it always creates oxidation because it allows oxygen in during that process, which gives um, actually really consistent results with the glazes. So if you're churning out loads commercially, this is you know, what you'll tend to use because you know what yeah. you're going to get is is pretty similar. Mm. Now, if you use a gas-fired kiln, they they do not let oxygen in during that process, um, which forces it into a reduction uh, mechanism. Yeah. And this gives often quite unpredictable results, but then you've mm. got that also that beautiful artistry of you're not quite sure what's going to come out uh, and every piece is likely to be a bit more unique and it will often give you these kind of rich, earthy tones in your pottery. Yeah, so it's very artisan, isn't it? That mm. that pottery, that uh, particular kiln. Um, and then, if you watch um, the pottery throwdown, you'll see that there are a couple of other kilns that are used often in the program. And this, these are the ones that create the little bit of suspense in the show. Mm. Um, so they'll use a wood-fired kiln. So in the show, they'll dig a huge pit and they'll fill it with wood, and then they'll pop their pots in and they'll they'll bury it, and then they'll be there all night waiting for the waiting for the pot to mm. to actually go through the process. And then it's that it's suspense. So much yeah when they dig it up and it's like has it worked the colors how they expected it to be has the pottery cracked you know it's all that kind of suspense Mm. um and the second one is uh raku and this is where um they heat the pottery until it's glowing and then they pull it out with tongs 
and eventually they'll dunk it in in colder water so they let it cool for a bit and then it's dunked in cold water and this creates kind of like a a crackling effect in the glaze which makes it look amazing yeah, I mean, it can look amazing. Yeah, but um, yeah. let's let's drift away now from the kind of classic ceramics that you mm. would expect us to be talking about in this episode. And um, we actually spoke to a ceramics expert who opened our eyes into the kind of seemingly endless world of ceramics, didn't we? Yes, and this is uh, Professor John Binner, and he is Professor of Ceramic Science and Engineering at the University of Birmingham, but crucially is also the President of the European Ceramic Society. Okay, so when when most people think about ceramics, they think about, you know, pottery and your classic pottery throwdown, which is what our podcast is about. But ceramics are a lot more than that, aren't they? So could you tell us, give us a definition of a ceramic and maybe some examples of their use in industry? Absolutely. Ceramic materials are anything which is not a metal and not a polymer. So they're actually defined by what they're not rather than by what they are. If we want to get technical then they are the combination of a metal atom, aluminium, magnesium, with a non-metal atom, oxygen, carbon, something like that. And therefore, they are materials which cover an enormously broad range. So clay is the obvious example of a material which makes ceramics, and that gives us everything from bricks to teacups to bowls uh, and, and so forth. But also we have a wide range of technical ceramic materials, and these come into quite a different uh, range of categories. For example, refractory materials, which are used in things like blast furnaces and glass furnaces to make other products. More advanced ceramics are considered to be the electro-ceramics. So these are ceramics with uh, really quite interesting electrical and electronic properties. If you were to take your mobile phone apart, if you were to take your computer apart, almost every electrical component or electronic component has got a ceramic based in it. So the capacitors, the resistors within that are all based on ceramic materials. Without ceramics, you would not have any electronic equipment in the world at all. We also use ceramics in the body, bioceramics. So artificial teeth are ceramics. Artificial bones are ceramics, but they also appear in a lot of the uh, sensors which we use to monitor our health. We also have ceramics which are used in the thermal industry as well as refractories. The space shuttle tiles, they were made of ceramics when the space shuttle used to go up. And then we have all of the mechanical ceramics, and these are ceramics which are used primarily, not always entirely, but primarily for their mechanical performance, and they range from body armours. When soldiers run around the uh, the battlefield, they will have a plate on the front and, and usually the back as well, which is made of ceramic. So ceramics are used in just about every facet of life, from defence to aerospace, communications to energy production and the manufacture of other materials. Uh, if you were to take away all the ceramics in the world, we wouldn't even be back in cave times because a good old caveman or cavewoman used to use ceramics. They were called rocks and rocks are just natural ceramics. So we have existed with these materials literally since the evolution of the Homo sapiens species. 
So if you take a car, for example, you know, you're talking about five to 600 pieces inside mm. a car. And some of the, you know, most of those components, it turns out, are actually ceramic. Mm. And if you take, you know, the bodywork and the tyres, for example, they're not. And, and maybe a number of parts of the engine, for mm. example, might not be ceramics. But they're increasingly in including ceramics in the engine mm. and changing the engine structure to include those ceramics and of course we've got glass as well so there's obviously quite a large amount of glass being used in a car yeah i mean our glass is really interesting so john actually called glass simply a ceramic material which hasn't yet crystallized and it's it's interesting actually because i remember being told at school that glass was a liquid because in old windows, oh, yes. the bottom of the pane <laughs> would be thicker than the top. And it implied that it yeah. was very slowly, um, you know, mm. not fully being a solid. Um, so that's kind of one of the age old debates. And that's not entirely true. Some mm. people will say that it's a super cooled liquid is glass. Um, but that's, that's not quite right. So glass is actually what's known as an amorphous solid. So it's a mm. state somewhere between these two states of matter. It's not fully liquid. It's not fully solid. So how this works is when glass is being made uh, and it's cooled, its molecules become much more structured than when it is a liquid, when it's hot. But it's not actually brought down to its own freezing point, so it doesn't form this crystallised, organised structure, so it doesn't fully become what you would expect from a solid structure. Yeah. Um, and, and it turns out that the reason that the bottom of the panes on medieval buildings are thicker than the top is just that they, they've they chosen to place them in the pane that way round to, to make sure they're stable. Um, nothing, to do with, nothing to do with the movement of the liquids. Um, so um, one of the things we found that surprised us when we were chatting away to John and we were carrying out research is this, this kind of all these different potential uses there are for ceramics. Mm. And it turns out they've got a really important role in space engineering. Mm. So, of course, we had to speak to John about this. Absolutely. If we look at the properties of ceramic materials, uh, they are very strong, they are very brittle, and so therefore they are not good at taking shocks, whether that's a mechanical shock or a thermal shock, but they are actually very strong materials, especially in compression. Uh, they are very heat-resistant materials, so the melting points of ceramics are much, much hotter than the melting points of your typical metals. And they also have a diversity of electrical and electronic performance. They can be conductors, they can be insulators, they can be semiconductors. Therefore, we can find a ceramic for almost any application. Uh, in terms of the example of a, of a space shuttle tile, they are thermally resistant. So they will go up to or went up to about 1500 degrees centigrade. But we can make materials that will go a lot hotter than that. Uh, and indeed, in my own laboratory, we developed... Um, ceramic composites which would go and were tested and shown to go to 3000 degrees centigrade. Okay now space is cool but how about things a little closer to home? So so why um, why are ceramics used in uh, jet engines? Is it the same reason as for space engineering or? Um, it's a similar one. Um, if you think about your jet engine the hotter the temperature uh, it runs out, the more efficient it is, the more fuel efficient it is. And the more fuel efficient it is, then the less fuel you need to carry and therefore the more passengers or goods, cargo that you can take. Um, so if you can push the temperature at which the jet engine works upwards, 
you make a significant saving in the amount of fuel you've got to carry. Ceramics are higher temperature materials than metals. Therefore, uh, a lot of the work which was done originally uh, was on single, uh, started off with polycrystalline metals, then moved to single crystal metals. Now there's a lot of work going on in the ceramics area. The uh, so-called LEAP engine was developed by General Electric, and it should be seeing service in the next two years or thereabouts and they will have significant amounts of ceramic in there. So we not only spoke to him about this kind of more engineering side in terms of you know jet planes and space and that kind of thing but we also talked to him about bioceramics didn't we? We did. Now, this this was really interesting. So bioceramics are ceramics that are biocompatible, um, which basically means they're inert in the human body. And it was discovered in 1969 that actually some glasses and ceramics could bond to living bone, which is amazing. Mm, that is amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like I'd never, I'd no idea about this. Um, no, and this is called osseo integration. Um, mm. So that's really useful in terms of things like replacement joints or hips or you know yeah. teeth and things like that. They were these kind of ceramics are really really useful. Um, mm. So some of the properties that work, obviously, as I've said, they're inert. They're not going to cause you any kind of chemical damage, but they're also very hard and resistant to abrasion. So particularly yeah. in bones and teeth, this is a very key property. You don't want a mm. tooth that when you chow down on some chocolate breaks at the same no. time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, some are even resistant to friction, which is what makes mm. them really good for um, joint replacements. So, for example, oh, in, in course, a hip replacement yeah. or something, you've, you've got the ball and the socket, haven't you? There's two parts to yeah, a replacement. Yeah. And it used to be metal on metal. Both parts would be made of metal. Mm. And now it's it's much more expensive to use. But in a lot of cases, they will use either metal on ceramic or ceramic on ceramic. Ceramic on ceramic yeah. being more expensive, the most expensive option, but it's actually it's much, it's got a much longer longevity in the body yes. and much greater yeah. resistance to wear and tear. So if you're young and you need a hip replacement, try your best. This is John's advice. Try your best yes. to get a <laughs> ceramic on ceramic um, hip mm. replacement because that will last you much longer. He said, he said, tell them that you run marathons <laughs> or just tell them that you're really active and that you, you need to have something that will put up with wear and tear because it is much likely to, to last for the rest of your life, which is brilliant. It's so interesting. Yeah. And um, there was a paper that came out in October 2020, which is talking about black ceramics. Now, black ceramics are created when uh, white ceramics undergo reduction. Mm. And what's really exciting about black ceramics is they've got this photothermal property. And this means they can be used in photothermal therapy. And this is a new developed treatment for cancer. And what actually happens is, is um, it, the, this phototherapy actually kills cells using heat. So if you imagine this is placed, this uh, ceramic is placed near to a tumor, for example. Mm. And what they do is they, um, they, they expose it to electromagnetic radiation and this heats it. Um, and that's, that heats it to such a high temperature. It kills the cells, which if you think about it, it's quite amazing. Mm. And that means you don't need to go through some of the other treatments, which can be quite invasive and, and obviously damaging to other cells in the body. Um, and not only this, they also improve um, bioactivity for skin and bone tissue repair. So this means they've got the potential to be used not only for tumour therapy, but also for tissue regeneration, you know, if you've been injured. Which Amazing. Is 
brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely, Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely amazing. Mm. And talking of cool ceramics, we've also got piezo electric ceramics. Mm. So this is um, so piezo electricity is um, the electric charge that accumulates in certain solids. So you've got crystals, ceramics, biological matter, things like bones, which accumulates in response to mechanical stress. So it's the appearance of an electrical potential or a voltage um, across it. For example, in a crystal, when you squeeze the sides of a crystal and you apply mm. that mechanical stress. So actually, interestingly, um, French physicists Jacques and Pierre Curie. Mm. Lovely names. Um, <laughs> first demonstrated this in 1880. This is where you, if you squeeze certain crystals um, and you can make electricity essentially flow through them. And the reason that I brought up their names was that actually Pierre was Marie Curie's husband and Jacques was Pierre's older brother. Yeah. What an amazing, amazing family. They've brought so much <laughs> to our lives. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what's exciting about this is that researchers at the moment at Lancaster University are investigating the use of these piezoelectric ceramics in roads and pavements. So the idea mm. is you embed them into the road or into the pavement and the vibrations of the cars going past creates this electrical current inside the ceramics. And then that current can then be stored in batteries at the side of the so road. So cool. That's amazing, isn't it? How sustainable so cool. is that? I love this. Run yeah. your streetlights on this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and this, they reckon um, it could be between one to two megawatts per kilometre if you've got normal traffic volumes going over, over the Which road. Is so much, isn't it? It's amazing. A whopping Absolutely amount. amazing. Mm. And, and interestingly, this works in reverse too. So if electricity is applied across a piezoelectric substance, then it, it causes it to vibrate. So this is actually how sonar devices work. So things like mm. ultrasound, um, because you'll have the the crystal or the substance actually in, if you're, if you're in a, an ultrasound situation, you've got the thing on your belly or whatever. Yeah. Inside the thing that the nurse is holding is a crystal or something that is being, uh, an electric force is being applied to, it will start to vibrate and then it will be able to produce um, sound waves of really, really high frequencies of up to yeah. 15 million hertz. And those sound waves bouncing off whatever's in your stomach during the ultrasound is what we see. And that's how we find out what's going on. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. So it's, I mean, it's not just used in ultrasounds and things. It's also used in things like quartz watches and microphones. Yeah. Just um, and and before the research, I'm afraid I've I've taught about ultrasounds quite a lot, but I had no idea that that's how it worked. Absolutely no. amazing, yeah. Um, so let's go down some kind of obscure little rabbit hole now, as if we weren't down one already. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna we're gonna do a little fun fact now. Um. So imagine your kitchen knife, instead of being made of stainless steel, is made of ceramic. Mm, okay. now, how do you think that might compare to your stainless steel knife? That's the big question. And it turns out that um, a, a ceramic knife stays sharper than a stainless steel knife. And this is due to the hardness of the ceramic. Um, and in the ceramics, normally uh, zirconium dioxide. Zirconium, mm. I like that. Zirconium dioxide. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. So the question is then, why are we using knives made of stainless steel and not my, knives made out of ceramic? Um, mm. And that's because actually ceramic is much more brittle. So if you drop yeah. it, it can snap if it hits a hard surface, which is, a, yeah. you know, not quite as useful in the kitchen. No, I don't know about you, but I'm always dropping stuff in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> now, um, Karen, you know that I'm a bit of a greenie. You know, the environment mm -hmm. gets me all fired up. Oh, yes. You see I see what you did there. I see what you did. <laughs> uh, you know, environment, science, nature, climate change, mm. sustainability, it's all, you know, very close to my heart. So when we were chatting to John, I was so excited to hear this next anecdote that we're going to play because actually John had been and his lab had been involved in some really exciting use of ceramics, which had the intention of making the world a better place for wildlife. 
Many years ago, we developed artificial ivory to try and save the elephant population. It didn't work. We made the ceramic. That, that, that was easy. Two or three years and we'd done that. The problem was the naughty but nice factor. Who wants to eat a really gooey chocolate eclair if you know the cream is artificial? What people like is the knowledge that actually this is not good. And so with our artificial ivory, yes, we could make an ivory that, uh, for example, a concert pianist would find our ivory as good as the real thing for the piano keys. But nobody wants to spend a huge amount on a concert piano that doesn't have genuine ivory keys. So therefore, the value of the piano is much less. As soon as the price tag goes down, concert pianists don't want to play on it. It can't be any good because it's cheaper. So, I mean, it was a slightly disappointing end to that story, Mm. perhaps. But, you know, maybe we'll glaze over that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, it was 25 years ago that he was working on this project. And as ivory these days is getting increasingly more regulated and increasingly expensive and, you know, potentially, hopefully much harder to get hold of. Also, in many circles, it's becoming less desirable. It's actually quite a shameful thing to be seen to have real ivory in, in widening groups of people. So perhaps there is a place in the future for his fake ivory. Yeah, in the same way that, you know, we we wear fake fur now. You know, there's not yeah. there's not a thing really for, for actual real fur. And yeah, hopefully that'll that'll go down the same route. Absolutely. Um now to round off, what we thought we'd do is we'd we'd give you a few other examples of the science behind ceramics and some really exciting uses that are happening at the moment. Yeah, particularly. I mean, quite a lot of them uh, have got designed with sustainability in mind, which is particularly yeah. exciting. So, for example, I mean, the manufacture of ceramics using a kiln does take a lot of energy. Mm, yeah. um, so researchers have been having a look at how do we reduce this energy cost. And some have actually developed a method of making ceramics at room temperature. This is really cool, yeah, obviously yeah, very yeah. useful. So they do this by using calcium carbonate nanopowder. Mm-hmm. Nano, you know, we like a bit pop, of nano. <laughs> down your local, local shop, grab some of that. Uh, and they use that as the starting powder and they add water. And instead of firing it, they actually compact it. And, mm. and that produces a sort of ceramic that you're able to use. Mm. Um, and then another one, we're both sat here drinking our coffee. Yep. But, you know, we, we were aware that there are rising concerns about mm. the environmental impact of coffee, um, you know, whether it's growing or consumption. But one of the things that has arisen is the single useness of the paper yeah. filters that we use in a lot of um, if, if you're having filter coffee, for yeah. example. You know, and, and some of these are bleached with chlorine, which mm. has its own environmental yeah impact that we're not going to go down that rabbit hole today (laughs) but there are some really interesting new forms of these filters being developed using ceramics so things that operate like glass or a microporous ceramic um, which can be used as an alternative and and as a reusable option which is pretty neat I think which is good because it means we can continue to drink coffee yes so good do go out and have a look for those because you can actually purchase them as we speak, mm. which is amazing. Um, and the other the other little rabbit hole we went down during our research was looking at bio-inspiration. So this is where you're looking at the environment and you're looking at plants and animals out there and using that as inspiration for science. So we know things like Velcro, for example, was inspired by, by real life. Um, and one of the examples is something called the deep sea dragonfish. And what's really cool about these is they've got mm. transparent teeth. And this is an adaptation. Bond villain yeah, style. Exactly. It's an adaptation. Um, and it's so that they can hide these big fangs from their prey. So their prey are less worried because they can't see the, the big teeth from a distance. Um, and researchers are using this as bio-inspiration for development of transparent mm. ceramics because it'd be great, you know, great if we could produce some c- ceramics that were transparent. Um, one of the others is um, the brittle star starfish. 
and um, they can create material like tempered glass underwater. And what they've got is down their legs, they've got all like these little kind of lenses that focus mm. the light into one position on their body. And that means they can detect movement around them. So dark shadows and things like that, which helps them detect predators. Mm. Um, but what's really exciting is that these lenses are made at room temperature in the open sea. Now, mm. if you're making normal tempered glass, you're talking about really, really high temperatures again. Um, so if we can actually use the same kind of technology that these uh, starfish are using to create tempered glass, that means no high pressure, no high rapid um, heating and, and no cooling. And that, again, is much more sustainable than, than currently mm. what we're doing. So bio-inspiration, everyone. It's brilliant. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. I mean, the world around us is crazy and yeah. we're constantly learning from it. I think it's it's really exciting. Mm. But I think I think that's probably enough for today. We've been on a journey. Yep. We've, um, we've made our own ceramics, which I don't think Keith is going to cry at, to no, be honest. No. But if he did, it would be for completely the wrong reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why are you wasting my time with these shoddy um, bowls, I think? Yeah. Yep. It's a shame we didn't make mugs actually, because that would have been fun to podcast with our own mugs. Oh yes, next time maybe we should go back. I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to do some more pottery. Kim, Kim was absolutely, absolutely amazing. It. She she was really so helpful. much fun. Yeah, <laughs> so lovely. So, um, what pottery puns did we manage to get oh. in? How many did you spot? So we started at the top with "Kill New Believe It," um, <laughs> and we'll be back again. Like you said, that works better when it's written down. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. doesn't quite have the same thing when you say it, does it? Oh wow. Um, yeah, Patrick Swayze got a mm. mention. Um, we got all fired up, didn't we? Yeah. We slipped. We let some things slip. Mm -hmm. You did fettle. I did. You explained fettling. <laughs> and I think we glazed over one or two things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, Keith gets a special mention, of yeah, course. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So um, I hope you enjoyed uh, this second series. And if this is your first program, then obviously do subscribe and listen back to all our earlier episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. And if you want more from us and you would like to support us in our endeavours of getting season three into the air, um, you can head over to our Patreon and support the podcast by just chucking us a quid or two uh, every month, which means that you'll get heaps of bonus bonus content from us and from our guests um, and you'll help us keep the show running. And uh, obviously do pop on over to our social media. We're on uh, Twitter, we're on Instagram. Well, you're obviously on Facebook and uh, you can find us at smallscreenscience.co.uk. So we'll continue to post fun things in the meantime. You might even see us at some science festivals next year, but we will release more details of that later. <laughs> yeah, and do uh, do have a chat with us on Twitter because we've already had from one of our followers um, an idea for next series. So if you have got some ideas for programmes that you'd like us to cover next series, do Very let us know. True. Let us know. Yeah, we're, we're in the planning stages, so we yeah. are all ears. What do you want to hear us dive into weird rabbit holes about? <laughs> Um, so take care everyone and we'll see you soon bye bye